And Father, thank you for that amazing love, that amazing grace that you, our God, should die for us. Making a, a path, making a way of salvation. Father, would you make these things clear to us? Help us to grow in the confidence of our salvation and in our confidence and under the authority of your word as well. Father, use the preaching and teaching of your word now to transform us and conform us to the image of our Lord Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, I have um, a memory of being, um, oh, 11, 12, 13 years old. These are the uh, last few years that we lived in the suburbs of South Chicago. And right next to our, our home there was a paved parking lot. And on the end of that parking lot was a basketball pole. And uh, sometimes when I had free time and, and always when I was all alone, I wouldn't do this around my buddies. But um, if I was alone, I would grab my basketball and go out and, and shoot some ball, you know, some layups and, and um, practice my hook shot and, and just uh, think about it. And in my mind, you know, I by myself without anyone there to compete, I was good. In fact, in my, in my imagination, I was in a vast arena. Have you been there? And there on the floor, the crowd going wild. The game would be down to just seconds on the clock. Give me the ball, give me the ball. And I would move and I would dribble through my legs and wind around. And I thought it was an awesome move. And then right before the clock expired and the buzzer went off, this is all inside my head, all alone on this blacktop basketball court by myself the bucket would go in just in time and we would win the game and I was the man and I would go out loud <sighs> that's the crowd going wild and I would grab the ball and dribble back out to the top and I would go <sighs> <sighs> and it was the greatest thing that ever happened to me the greatest moment of my life when I won the game what would be the greatest thing that could ever happen to you? Could you articulate what you think would be the greatest moment of your life? As we turn to Matthew's Gospel in chapter 9 today, we have a story of a man who I am confident that if you were to speak with him, he could tell you the exact time and the exact place when the greatest thing that ever happened to him happened. It's a really interesting story, and um, as you know, we're still kind of coming off the Sermon on the Mount. Um, we've, we've been with Jesus for, for many months here at Fellowship Bible Church, listening to the Sermon on the Mount, and we've come off the mountain, and one of the things that Matthew is doing in his gospel, and you need to kind of think about this a little bit, Matthew is, is writing, and he's immediately coming off the mount where the people have been so impressed with his teaching. In fact, they have marveled, what kind of man is this? What kind of prophet is this that teaches with such authority? And remember that Matthew, the longest of the gospel, is presenting Christ as the king. We've been using the phrase, the master of the universe. 
And so Matthew, as Jesus comes down off the mountain, the crowds are following him. He immediately recounts eight miracles in a row in chapters 8 and 9. We've already covered all of chapter 8 and touched on those miracles. And Matthew, by design, is elevating Christ as king. He's elevating him as the master of the universe. And he's shown us, hasn't he, that this king, this king of kings, this lord of lords, this master of the universe with a word has authority over sickness, with a word can speak to the sea and calm the sea, with a word he can cast out demons and he has authority over Satan. And today, actually most remarkable of all, with a word, Matthew is going to show Jesus as the master of the universe with authority over sin and he can speak sin away. It's incredible. Let's read our account in Matthew's Gospel. It begins in chapter 9 with verse 1. It's Matthew 9, 1 through 8. And getting into a boat... Okay, let's just stop there. So when we read the Bible, let's make sure we pick up the succession or the, the chain of events... Why would Jesus be getting in a boat? Well, when our eyes glance up at the end of chapter 8, we realize that he's coming off that fantastic uh, challenge of all the legion of demons. And that's where he had, they had landed. It's a, the, the Sea of Galilee has real steep banks there. And up on top of the bank is that cemetery where the crazy men have been, that crazy men at Gadaria that they tried to put chains on and ropes on. And he could, because of the power of Satan in him, just break them apart. He lived among the two. It's an incredible story, and it ends up in great victory as our Lord speaks the word over Satan. The demons leave. That's where they indwell the hogs, the pigs. The 2,000 pigs then go crazy with the demons in them and jump off the edge of the cliff and are drowned. And the man then is transformed by the power of Christ. He's clothed. He's in his right mind. He wants to follow Jesus, remember? And Jesus tells him, no, you go home and just tell everybody what great things God has done for you. And what a transforming work God did in his life. That guy can remember the greatest thing that ever happened to him, too, I think. And Jesus speaks the word and he has power over Satan. And so they come off that steep bank and they get back in their boats. And if you sail on an angle, uh, kind of from, from west to, to, to north, you can uh, go across the corner of the Sea of Galilee there and you'll come to Capernaum. And, and verse nine, chapter 9, now verse 1 to our text. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and he came to his own city. Matthew doesn't name it. It's Capernaum, uh, north above Nazareth there, right on the Sea of Galilee. And behold, some people, Matthew just says, some people, brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? I I just think you have to be really careful what you think when you're around Jesus. (laughs) He can just see right into the core of their being. He knows them. In John's Gospel, it says that Jesus knows the heart of a man. 
Jesus knows what they're thinking. He knows their thoughts. Verse 4, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. You could underline it. That's the punchline of the passage. That you may know that the Son of Man, that's Jesus' favorite name for himself. It speaks of his humility. That you might know that he has the authority over sin. We've already seen sickness and the sea and Satan and now sin. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and he went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there? It is interesting to me as we read our text, and I want you to hold that in your minds, um, that that one of the things we should think when we are reading our Bibles is I wonder, especially in the Gospels, I wonder if um, Mark, Luke, or John recorded that as well. And in fact, if we do a little search, we find out that Mark records this in Mark chapter 2, and Luke records this same story in Luke chapter 5. And much like the same pattern in the story of the crazy man up in the tombs. Matthew, though it is the most exhaustive and the longest gospel, and in many ways the most detailed gospel, defers to Mark, which is the shortest sort of the Reader's Digest condensed version of the gospels. And Mark gives us much more intimate detail, kind of the human life experience of it, both with the crazy man at Gadaria and in this story itself. So what I would like to do is to bounce out of Mark, out of Matthew into Mark chapter 2, and I would like us to use that for our text simply because he sheds a little bit more detail and it's the same account. You'll notice in Matthew's gospel that he just says a crowd. And he says uh, they had gathered. And then he says some people brought a paralytic. Well, we're going to get all the details filled in on that. By the way, it is possible as you read your Gospels and you compare some of these, and some of you like to do that, you'll, you'll read the Matthew passages we're studying and then you'll find them in Mark or Luke. Um, those are the three um, synoptic Gospels. That means they fit together the best. John kind of stands alone, is a little different. Um, you'll notice that Matthew doesn't record things in the same order that Mark and Luke do. And you you ask yourself, well, what is that all about? You'll particularly notice it when we come up in chapter 9 to to Jesus appointing the 12. And particularly Matthew is going to emphasize himself as the tax collector and his conversion and his following after Jesus. And that all comes after the Sermon on the Mount, after these events took place of the crazy man at Gadaria, the healing of the paralytic and things like that. When you read in Mark and Luke, you find that the gathering of the twelve and the appointment to them, to their positions in following Christ, happened before the Sermon on the Mount. And you ask yourself, well, what's, what's going on here? What's the right order? Now, don't let that confuse you. Remember, we need to understand the author's mind. And the Gospels are written with a little different emphasis, a little different um, uh, angle and a slant on the life and ministry of Jesus. And so when you read Matthew's Gospel, remember that he is out to prove one thing. He is proving to the Jews, he's writing to the Jews, and he's proving to them that Jesus is their king. He's the authority. He's the master of the universe. Matthew is not so concerned with chronological order. Matthew is making an argument. And so he sets the thing up, and and as a writer, he takes liberties, and he picks and chooses the stories that he wants to fit together to illustrate his point. 
It doesn't mean that, he, that the Bible's contradictory or that you can't rely upon it. You have to understand the author and what he's doing. And he had the freedom. He was there. He saw it. He heard it. He knew what was happening. And now he's writing to the Jews who are so skeptical. They don't believe Messiah has come. They don't believe that he has authority. And now he's writing specifically to them to prove that Jesus is the master of the universe. He's the king. And so he's lining up these stories to make his point and to drive home the reality of Jesus as king. So really, when you read Mark and Luke, you get a little bit better, a little bit better of an understanding unfolding of a chronological timeline. And that might be helpful to you to understand that they were a little bit more concerned about running things in order. And Luke specifically even says, uh, as he opens up his gospel, because remember, Luke was not one of the disciples. He was a physician and a historian. And that Luke even opens up his gospel by writing in chapter one and verse one and two there that to his friend Theophilus that he had set out to record an orderly account of all of these amazing things that happened. And so Luke is writing an orderly account. And he's a little bit more reliable upon, uh, for the chronological, the chronology of the rundown of the life and ministry of Christ. So I only mention that so that you know how to think about the Gospels as you read them. And then you don't let that become a confusion point or a point where you think, oh man, the Bible's all scrambled and mixed up. It's not at all. It's just the different vantage points um, written by these different disciples. Well, in Mark's gospel in chapter 2, we have the account from verses 1 to 12, and he gives a few more details. Um, We also have in uh, Luke's gospel in chapter 5, let's read a few verses of of Mark chapter 2, and we're going to just stay here now, other than a quick glance at Luke 5. Mark 2, beginning with verse 1, And when he, that's Jesus, returned to Capernaum, okay, remember Matthew just said he got in the boat and went to his hometown. Okay, Mark lends a little more detail. And after some days, it was reported that he was at home. All right, so some time has gone by and many, okay, the way Mark puts it, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. So there's a couple things in verses 1 and 2 that are worth commenting about in case you're, um, you know, you're really thinking this through critically. Um, It says, that it was reported that he was at home, Jesus, in Capernaum, where he grew up, an area, the area where he grew up. We just had last week the reminder that Jesus said to those disciples that wanted to follow him. Remember, the disciples spoke up, a couple of disciples spoke up and said, Jesus, we want to follow you. And remember, Jesus' response was, well, foxes have dens and birds have nests of the air, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He doesn't have a home. Then what's the deal here that Mark says he was at home? It means the general vicinity. The house that they're in here was not owned by Jesus, no doubt. It was not his house. He didn't have a house. Many Bible students believe that it was likely that it was Peter's house. The Bible doesn't say, so we'll not get hung up on it. But it was a home where he was staying, and people heard that he was there. It's a good time to flip over to Luke 5 and to just use as an example on this occasion how the Gospels shed different light and add detail. This begins in verse 17 in Luke chapter 5. And he just starts the story by saying, on one of those days, as he was teaching. Now he gives a little insight as to who was there. Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. 
That's also a little clue in, Mark, in Luke 5 as to why the room was so crowded. These pompous, arrogant religious leaders felt like they had to sit down when everybody else was standing up. And so no doubt they're lounging around thinking that they're really important with their big hats in the way of everybody and their big clothes. And there they are. And Jesus is teaching and they're in close. And so they're sitting there who had come from, look where everybody had come from, every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And notice how Luke adds this line, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. That's interesting. Let's go back to Mark 2 now, because Mark describes it as he says, he's back at Capernaum, he was at home, and many, so we know where they came from all over the place, as far as Jerusalem even, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room partly because those Pharisees and scribes were sitting around, not standing, not even at the door. And, and Mark says, and he was preaching the word to them. Uh, no doubt some of the themes from the Sermon on the Mount that we've heard, um, no doubt that, that crystallizing call to repent that he launched his ministry with. Remember the first message that we heard from Jesus in his public ministry was to repent because the kingdom of God was near. John the Baptist said the same thing. So he's preaching, he's teaching the word. Maybe he's got Isaiah open and he's teaching the word. People have gathered. They want to be around this one who teaches with such authority, who's been healing the lame and the blind and the sick. In fact, let's just kind of begin a running understanding of the passage. What we've described so far, number one in our text, is a neighborhood congregation. There's been a congregation made up of the neighborhood. The neighborhood has gathered, and it's a congregation there, probably um, at a home where Jesus is very comfortable and is staying, perhaps Peter's house, in this hometown region of Jesus. As we read down and continue in Mark's account, and as I said, he gives more detail than Matthew. As Jesus is preaching the word to them and it's crowded and the people are spilling out the doors, no doubt people are trying to listen in the windows and gathering around. It's quite a notable scene. Verse 3 says, And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Immediately we're introduced to a character number two with a story of devastation. A story of devastation we don't know this man's story. We don't know if he fell off a ladder. We don't know if he was bit by some kind of a viper that paralyzed him. We don't know if he's a paraplegic or a quadriplegic. All we know is it's a grown man who's described as a paralytic. We don't know that if it's how long it's been. We don't know if he's on his, on his last days towards death. But the man is seriously broken. He's pathetic. In fact, he's so weak and he's so helpless. And I take it, I imagine in my mind, the text doesn't tell us, so we have to be cautious. But here's a man who is likely a quadriplegic with no ability to use his hands or his legs. But we see right away that he has four friends who are carrying him. Four men, it describes them. The third thing we see are his friends in cooperation. His friends in cooperation. From the detail of four men, we can kind of picture, it doesn't say, some kind of a stretcher, some kind of a, a sheet or blanket stretcher with a man on each corner. There's four men, it says. So likely there's four because they're carrying this dear man in this sheet or stretcher. He's so helpless. And there he is, tucked down in his stretcher. Four men carrying him. He's absolutely helpless. It's a story of devastation, but thankful for the cooperation of his friends. But we read on in the story, and we find out that they are immediately met with frustration. Notice what happens. And when they could not get near him, they come because of the crowd. 
So here they come. They can see the house. The crowd has spilled out the door. I'm picturing in Africa when I'm preaching in Malawi, these mud buildings, open-sided windows, doors, and the whole village has gathered and they're jammed in there tight and the air is close and and people's faces are in all of the grids and the windows looking in all around and when you look out the back door of the church when you're up front preaching it just spills out with people and here they come carrying this man in their stretcher their homemade stretcher carrying him on his mat and immediately their plan is frustrated we want to get him to jesus I love their, number five, their stubborn determination, though. You could use the word innovation here as well. Notice as they look, they realize that there's a stairway of some kind that goes up to the roof. And it says in verse four, with limited detail, but absolutely enough detail for us to imagine it clearly. And when they could not get near him, that would be Jesus, because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. It's great, isn't it? These guys come carrying their buddy. We don't know whose idea it was to get him to Jesus. We know that they had faith. Jesus is going to commend them for their faith. I assume that to be all five. We'll see that in a minute. They see the crowd. They can't get in. A moment of frustration is foiled with a little innovation and some determination. And they go up the stairs. They've figured out in the house where Jesus is. This is some kind of... um, And they do this in Africa as well. Um, Build these buildings and they're remarkably straight for all the crooked poles that they use. But they'll lay out poles, um, maybe four to six inches in diameter, long poles, skinny at one end and thicker at the other end because they've cut down these young growth trees. And they'll lay them across and then they'll put straw and then they'll pack mud. And they'll make a, a pretty firm deck. Uh, in Bible times, they had some kind of sun-baked bricks or kiln-fired bricks that they could use or tile. Um, they would run their, their timbers across and they would lace it with the tile or the clay. And it made an upper deck where there was useful for a variety of things. They could lay out their grains, for example, and they could dry in the sun. Uh, they could go up there and they could, they could have things stored up there to keep them away from the uh, easy access from the neighbor kids or thieves. Um, in the warm season, they would be up there just like we like to be out on a deck or in a screened-in porch, they would go up. Uh, either in, when the sun came out, when it was warm after the rainy season, they could get up there and they could warm themselves. Or in a hot summertime, they could get up there and catch a breeze and try to cool off in the evenings. But it was accessible from down below. And so they figured out where Jesus was in the room. And you can kind of picture it, can't you? They start picking through this clay tile and, and the, the baked mud. And, the, and all of a sudden, this... This stuff starts falling from the ceiling. And I imagine these Pharisees and scribes aren't too happy. You know, they're kind of like, what's going on here? It doesn't say how high the ceiling is. I'm not sure how high the ceiling needs to be. Sometimes in these rooms, the ceilings weren't all that high. A man could just kind of reach up and touch the ceiling. And it was enough clearance and headroom. These guys go up there, they start pulling it away. And their frustration is turned away by their determination, and it leads us to this great moment, number six, of salvation. A great moment of salvation in verse five. Look what we have. And they let down the bed of which the paralytic lay, the end of verse four, and when Jesus saw their faith, he says to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. You remember what he said in 
in chapter 9 of Matthew on this part, it's very encouraging. You get a little insight into Jesus. Here he is teaching. Here he has these scribes and these Pharisees critiquing every word. He's got the crowds pushing in. And then all of a sudden, this junk starts falling from the ceiling. And somebody is disturbing them by ripping a hole in the very ceiling right above their heads. And when Jesus sees what's happening, notice how he speaks to the man in verse 2 of chapter 9 of Matthew. You do not have to turn there. He says, take heart, my son. Be encouraged, my son. It's kind of like, welcome, buddy. I've been waiting for you. Come right here. And Jesus is always accommodating, isn't he? To those who are broken and in need. Always accommodating. And we have this, this outstanding moment. It, it is somewhat puzzling, though, what happens next in the story. I mean, you get the idea that the four friends and the, and the broken man in the sheet and the stretcher are coming to Jesus for one reason. What's the reason? To get, to get his body fixed, right? To be restored to health and strength. He has a great problem in his life. His body is broken. It needs fixed. And we got this guy in town who can heal. Let's take him to him. And Jesus does something that is absolutely puzzling. He turns and looks at the man, and, and he, I don't know how they got him down. Maybe on their knees they could just kind of lower him right down, and maybe automatically the people down below kind of reached up and took him, and, and down he comes. Or maybe they had ropes. That's the way it was on the flannel graph in my Sunday school. Do you know flannel graph? It's, um, it's in the museum. You can Google it. It's what we used to use in Sunday school for pictures on a on a on a felt board. It's good stuff. Because it triggers the imagination. It doesn't think for you. Like a video. And so, they, I don't know if they, they lowered them on ropes in my stories all the time, but maybe they didn't. Maybe they just had the corners of that and, and it, maybe it was only a few feet down and they ripped away enough of the tile and down he comes and they reached up and here he's in front of Jesus and you're expecting this great moment to be that of healing and it's a great moment of salvation. And he looks at him and he says, take heart, son. Your sin is forgiven. Now that creates theological problems for us because all of a sudden we have a conversion of a guy who hasn't said anything. We got a guy who hasn't asked to be saved. We got a guy who hasn't repented of his sin. What's that all about? I'd I'd suggest a couple things. First of all, remember Jesus knows our thoughts, right? So we know Jesus knows what he's thinking. And as I've already cautioned us, be very careful what you think around Jesus, which is all the time, by the way. Here's a few thoughts on this. How did this salvation work if the man didn't speak? If the man came for physical healing and he got healed spiritually first, what was that all about? Well, first of all, I think you need to understand we're dealing with Jesus. And Jesus knows their hearts and minds. And furthermore, Jesus can pretty, pretty much do whatever he wants. It's always right. All right? So don't sit around and doubt Jesus. If Jesus wants to do it, it was the right thing to do. So we'll give this a special dispensation of salvation because Jesus was right there. He's the only one who could look over at the dying thief as well and say, Today you'll be with me in paradise. Because he's the one who can speak away sin. You talk about power. He can speak away sin. But it's Jesus and he knows the man's heart and mind. And secondly, we're told in the story, look where it says in verse 5, and he saw their faith. There's no reason to believe that that doesn't include the paralytic. And notice, according to James chapter 2, that faith without works is dead, right? 
And James argues there, you talk about your faith, fine and dandy, but let me show you my faith by my works. Jesus knew that they had a real faith because they were putting into action what they believed to be true, that Jesus could transform their lives. The level of that faith, their understanding of that faith, their understanding of sin, and Jesus Christ as Redeemer, we don't know. But Jesus knows their heart. He knows their mind. And thirdly, I think the reason Jesus did it is because he was using this occasion as a lesson to show. And that's why Matthew records it and sequence his authority over sea, sickness, Satan, and now his authority over sin. And Matthew wanted to show that Jesus can speak away sin anytime he feels like it. He's the king of the universe and he has authority over sin. And the scribes and the Pharisees couldn't stand it. So notice that immediately this moment of salvation in verse 5 is followed by a very serious accusation. Let's continue to make our way through our story. Now some of the scribes, verse 6, were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? You can't talk like that. Who can say, sin be gone? Why, that's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? That's the point, buddy. That's the point. You're in the presence of God and you don't even know it. And you're blaspheming him. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that this, that thus questioned within themselves, that they thus questioned within themselves. Eighthly, we see inside information. Our Lord has inside information on what they're thinking And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit, verse 8, that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? Answer the question, what do you think? What's easier? Is it easier to say, sin be gone, or lame man, be healed, pick up your bed, roll it up and go home to your family and get back to work? What do you think? Sin. Remember, wolves in sheep clothing can even say that. Anybody can say it. Yo, your sin is forgiven. But the Pharisees had one thing right. One thing they had right was that only God can forgive sin. And so Jesus wanting to show them, you want to know the answer to your question, I'll give it to you in living color. And now we also have insight as to why he forgave the man's sin before he healed him. It's to document the reality of who it was that was standing in front of them. This is the master of the universe. He gives them, number nine, a powerful demonstration. Verses nine through twelve, a powerful demonstration. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up and take your bed and walk? Well, anybody can talk. Who can put their money where their mouth is? Who can heal a broken body? Jesus can, because he's God in the flesh. He's deity in our presence. But that you may know, verse 10, that the Son of Man has authority on earth. There it is. That He has authority on earth to forgive sins. That's what Matthew is arguing as well. You want to know who the authority on earth is over all of these things? Add sin to the list. He's had authority over sin. He can speak it away. He said to the paralytic. So notice that Mark is describing, and Matthew would argue as well, that to prove that he has the authority over sin, he's going to physically heal the guy. He's already forgiven him of his sins. To show that he has the authority to do that, he says, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed, and he went out before them all, so that they were all amazed. 
and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. I dare say that this is the greatest moment in this man's life. The day that Jesus spoke his sin away and put his broken body back together. Could this man ever have a greater day? It was, number 10, a life-changing transformation. It was a life-changing transformation. Right in front of the Pharisees, right in front of the scribes, who moments before accused him of blasphemy, he takes a pitiful, broken, paralyzed man and restores him with a word to full strength, renewed muscle tissue, total nerve endings that fire electrodes, everything's in working order, and the man gets up, doesn't have to practice walking, doesn't have to stagger around a platform with somebody beating him in the forehead saying, Be healed! Be healed! The man just gets up, rolls up his bed, and he walks out of the room and says, I'm going home, man. I got people I got to see and things to do. What a moment. He's the king of the universe, and he can speak away sin. What do we take away from this? First of all, I want you to see, number one, that the hero of the story is Jesus. It's not the four guys. Don't be confused by the four guys. They're good guys, and we're going to learn some lessons from them, but the hero of the story is Jesus. And he's a hero because he could speak away sin. And when he speaks away sin, it's gone. The Old Testament gives us some great metaphors for that. You come to the cross, you acknowledge your sinfulness. At the cross is where you meet Jesus. At the cross is where the earthly and the divine come together. It's where there's a holy God who has an expectation of perfection and you don't have it. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But out of his love and kindness, Jesus, God sent Jesus. He kept the, kept the law for us. He lived a perfect life. He went to the cross. He transferred our guilt upon himself, paid the penalty of our sin with the death penalty. But he rose again to prove that he was God. So he paid the price, but yet he lives. And he continues to live and intercede for us. You don't have to go through anybody else. You go direct to God through Jesus Christ. There's only one mediator between God and man, Paul said in Philippians, the man Christ Jesus. He's our high priest. We need no other priest. And he did it for us. And when you come to the cross, and remember, as we've been emphasizing in this gospel, that only humble people come to Christ. Proud people don't need Jesus. You might even be recognizing that in your own heart right now. you got a little bah humbug going on right now. That's because only humble, broken people come to Jesus. And remember, your day of humility and brokenness is coming. Go to Jesus. Go to Jesus while you can. And he speaks away our sin. And we go, and he, and, and he that confesses and forsakes his sin has new life in Christ. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And he gives eternal life. And the metaphors for that exchange and what happens in the mind of God. Psalm 103, verse 12. Psalm 103, verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far our sin is removed from us. That broken man that day when he said, Your sin is forgiven, his sin went as far as the east is the west from God's sight. you got to think about that for a minute, but it, it means they're infinitely apart. They never can come together. 
Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18 says, Though our sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. There's another metaphor. We who were dirty and bloodstained from our sin will be made white as snow. No sin, no record. Jeremiah 31, 34. Jeremiah 31, 34. God says, I will remember their sin no more. We talk about that here every once in a while, don't we? You've got that repeated sin. You've got that going back. And you've asked forgiveness and you're standing in righteousness before a holy God. And Christ has paid the price for your sin. Something way in the past, no doubt. And it just, every once in a while, it comes in your mind. and says, why did I do that? And I hurt so many people and I did such dumb things. And I have gone to God and God. And then you say, God, would you please just forgive me for that? You remember what I'm talking about. And he, God at the, with Jesus at the right hand, elbows him and says, is that one of yours? He says, yes, that's one of mine. Did you forgive his sin at the cross? Yes, I forgave his sin at the cross. What in the world is he talking about that sin? I have no record of that sin. I remembered it no more. When he remembers it no more, there's no record of it. We keep reminding him of something that he has forgotten. And it's as far as the east is from the west. That's how Jesus speaks away sin. Micah 7.19 says, He will tread, he will walk on all our iniquities underfoot. And he will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. They're gone. It's gone. I ride with funeral directors in hearses. Lately, I've been doing it almost every Friday. And uh, we talk. And they tell me stories about funerals and stuff that they've done. And some of them are really funny. And I was with a funeral director in a hearse one time. And we got to talking about the, the casket of John F. Kennedy. And where is it? And uh, there's a story about that it got dumped in the sea. That he was transported from Dallas up to D.C., and they said, well, the word is that it got dumped out in the ocean. It's gone. Nobody knows where it is. It's just gone. That's the picture. It's, it's dumped out in the sea. And it's not like some explorer is going to find it someday with an imaging machine and a scuba diving set. The idea there is that it's been dumped into the sea and it is gone. When Jesus speaks away your sin and you bend to the cross... He forgives you of all your unrighteousnesses. We confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. They're gone, gone, gone. He speaks it away. He has authority over sin. That's the hero of the story, my friend. Let's do mention these four friends briefly as we conclude. What about these four friends? Let me just rattle off a couple of thoughts I jotted down about them. Number one, they clearly lived out Matthew 7, 12, didn't they? The golden rule. They did unto others as you would have them do unto you. You got a friend who's broken, and you know that Jesus can heal them, and you do everything you can to get them to Jesus. If you needed Jesus, and you had a friend who needed Jesus, wouldn't you want your friend to be with great determination and innovation getting you to Jesus? Getting you to the foot of the cross? That's nothing other than living out the golden rule. You're broken. You need Jesus. I will get you there. That's Matthew 7, 12. They clearly understood that their friend needed Jesus and they did something about it. Number three, they were spiritual entrepreneurs. I like this about them. They were spiritual entrepreneurs. They had this determination. You know, they carrying this guy in the sheet coming up to him in the stretcher coming up to Jesus and the crowd is too big. He's like, oh well, can't get him in there. 
Go home. Turn around. Go home. You ever notice that when you make up your mind that you want to point one of your friends who needs Jesus to Jesus, how easily you are discouraged from that? You ever notice how the little tiny bumps in the road it takes to keep you from reaching your friend for Christ? I think this is a wake-up call here, an example of a, of a needed determination and innovation for us to be spiritual entrepreneurs and figure out how we're going to get our broken friends to Jesus. That's a good lesson there. Finally, the greatest need in anyone's life that we take from this story, the greatest need in anyone's life, regardless of their physical condition, is to be forgiven of your sin. You want to know what the greatest moment of your life is? You want to know what the greatest thing that could ever happen to you is? It is to figure out one day that you are a dirty, rotten sinner and that Jesus died for your sin and that He can make you a new creation in Christ. You know, Jesus isn't here to speak away your broken physical part. And I don't know what you got. You got your hair falling out, your teeth falling out, your toenails growing in. I don't know what it is. Who cares? Who cares? Who cares if you have the whole world, but if you forfeit your soul, friend? The greatest moment of your life is not hitting a buzzer beater basket in front of a great stadium of people screaming for some game that couldn't matter less. The greatest moment of your life is at the foot of the cross when you come to Jesus and you recognize that spiritually you're broken and that only one who can put you back together is Jesus who can speak away your sin. He has authority over sin. He's the only one who has authority over sin. That's a guarantee. The physical part, sometimes he answers prayer for healing and sometimes he doesn't. The ultimate healing comes when we slip into His presence, huh? And you know what the greatest thing you can do for your family? When they pull these steps out, Clint and Richard come and get the steps out of here, and Alan Norton wheels your casket down front here, and I'm preaching your funeral, that the greatest thing that you could do for your family and your church and your community is to be able to speak about the greatest moment that anybody could ever have, and that's at the foot of the cross, and it's a testimony of faith and trust in Jesus Christ beyond a shadow of a doubt, and to show the transformation of life that comes with it. And to know that you're in heaven for all of eternity. And by that moment, you are healed of any other malady you might have physically. The greatest moment anybody can have is at the foot of the cross. Have you been there? Has Jesus spoken away your sin? Have you confessed it? Forsaken it? Bowed humbly in his presence. And he says, take heart, my child. Your sin is forgiven. Wow. Let's pray. Will you ask yourself before I close in prayer, if you've been there to the foot of the cross, is the reality of that greatest moment that anybody could experience yours, of knowing that your sin is forgiven and you are now in right standing before a holy God. If not right now, you can just, in the privacy of your own heart and mind, you can, you can admit your sinfulness and confess that Jesus is Lord and come to the cross, spiritually speaking, and let him speak away your sin. Why don't you do that? Oh, God, I know I'm a sinner. I know that I'm lost. May the, may the master of the universe speak away my sin. At this moment, make me your child. 
transform me and heal me. Father, would you accomplish your purposes in us? Father, would you just help us to learn the lessons needed from this great story and this great moment from the master of the universe who can speak away sin? And Father, would you break our hearts for our, our needy, broken friends like these four friends? And may we, may we be spiritual entrepreneurs driven to get our friends into the, into the presence of Christ and do our part. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.